Welcome to episode 17 of the Bike Pack Canada podcast with yours truly, Ryan Corey. Uh, news of the week. Um, well, uh, by the time this uploads uh, to your earbuds, uh, so it'll be towards the end of March here, I'll have wrapped the Calgary Bike Show and uh, just just secured this, but a podcast interview with former pro cyclist uh, Tyler Hamilton. Uh, so really... Uh, for those that know the story of him and U.S. Postal and Lance Armstrong, uh, there isn't a lot of bikepacking specifics in there, but I'm really looking forward to getting into a conversation about what um, you know life life away from racing looks like these days for him. Um, what what is his relationship with the bike, and uh, what he thinks of bikepacking? I, I hear he's pretty interested in learning more, um, and that will be out on April 1st. My interview today is with uh, Hillary Young of uh, Canmore, conveniently. Uh, she's the Alberta Program Coordinator for the Yellowstone to Yukon Conser- Conservation Initiative. Uh, my connection to the YY group, um, it was back in 2000, yeah, 2005, um, I was cycling from Alaska to Argentina, and uh, just before I left on that big uh, three plus month trip. Um, a local friend uh, gave me a book by uh, Carson. Uh, I never know how to say his last name, but Hoyer. 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 Yeah. Hoyer. Carson Hoyer. Um, the book was Walking the Big Wild. Um, I don't remember all the specifics, but it was about him walking from Yellowstone to Yukon. Uh, in an effort, I believe, um, from what I recall, it was to educate a lot of the, the local stakeholder, stakeholders along the way about what uh, the wildlife corridor is all about and the importance of uh, working together on, um, uh, on the initiative. Um, so it was, it was fitting at the time because uh, as I was reading it, um, I was passing through the, the Yukon up in Whitehorse. And uh, so that, that's, that's where I first learned. Um, and then, um, you know, of course, for those of you that have done the, the Tour Divide or, or just toured the Great Divide mountain bike route, um, you'll, you may not have realized it, but our route from Banff all the way down to Pinedale uh, in Wyoming, so the, essentially the first half of the route, it really goes almost entirely through this Yellowstone to uh, Yukon corridor, so wildlife corridor. So, you know, quite often... We hear of these fantastic stories of uh, uh, bear encounters and grizzly bear encounters and uh, various wildlife along the way. Um, and, uh, you know, t- today I think the, the goal really is to, to put some of that in perspective. You know, why are, why are the animals traveling uh, through that area? Um, you know, what is, the, what is the initiative? You know, how can we get involved and uh, yeah, just really, really get a better understanding of, of one of, you know, the more popular areas uh, for bikepacking, because I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a good idea to live within a, a bubble of not knowing, you know, what's happening within these backcountry areas. And, um, you know, I think even more so it's, it's important for us to, to try to take a, a bit of an active role in, in helping to support uh, the conservation efforts and to make sure that we can keep doing uh, the things we love. Uh, so today with Hillary Young, and uh, my my first question for for Hillary is, uh, and we, we briefly chatted before we came on here, but it must be interesting times around uh, the dinner table right now with uh, your partner Jeff. He's I hear he's pretty engaged on the the conservation front these days. He he is. He's taken on. Um a really great role that I sometimes feel is controversial, um, but needed and necessary. And I think he identified a gap in, um, in advocacy. There weren't many people out there trying to get people engaged around issues in the Bow Valley specifically. Um, for those of you who don't know, there's a lot of development being proposed in the Bow Valley uh, where we live, and not all of it is um, wildlife friendly, we'll, we'll put it that way. And so Jeff has taken it upon himself to try to um, get people engaged and inspired to um, let their voices be heard about these issues and what the future of Canmore looks like. So f- for those that don't know, and I've, I've spoken often about the Bow Valley, but I never really could, kind of stated where it is. Um, so th- that's kind of one of your specialties. Would you say it's, is the Bow Valley pretty much from uh, Lake Louise through Canmore um, out to the, the, the front range of the mountains there? Is that, is yeah, that the area? Yeah, that's about right. It's, um, we think of the Bow Valley as going down towards 
Akshar really. Okay. Um, essentially, the the end of the mountain ranges. Yeah. Um, Lake Louise, I, it's funny, sometimes people include it in the Bow Valley and sometimes people don't. When yeah. we, none of our work um, happens specifically in Lake Louise at the moment. Um, our, our Bow Valley stuff is pretty much Banff um, down east towards Akshaw. Okay. Or so, yeah. So, uh, partner Jeff, he's, he's quite engaged. Is, is this a, a product of you know, seeing your passion and enthusiasm for, for what's going <laughs> on? Or is this totally self-generated? Where does this come from? That, that's a good question. I think that Jeff uh, actually recognized some of the frustration that I was experiencing. Um, uh, working for y y has been awesome in many ways, but um, we, we are talking specifically about the wildlife corridor when we are doing advocacy work. Yeah. And, uh, and there are a lot of socioeconomic impacts that might come along with the development um, that's being proposed in Canmore. And we, we can't really talk about that stuff, but Jeff felt like someone needed to talk about that stuff. So yeah. he, uh, he took on that role. And, and, you know, to, a bit more background on, on Jeff, but, you know, before we get into Hillary, you know, what, what makes this interesting is, you know, Jeff has, has put himself out there. He's doing these, um, you know, uh, educational videos uh, every couple of weeks on, on why we need to have a positive and informed and uh, open discussion on, on the development in the areas. And he's taken this all on himself. And then you go and look at uh, the Facebook and uh, you know, all, all matter of comments are coming his way, you know, not all positive. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, he's this, he's this calm yoga teacher. <laughs> and I just wonder how, <laughs> I, I just, I wonder how he's holding it together, but he must be doing a lot of yoga these days. I, I can tell you that, uh, some of the frustration comes out yeah. for sure. And, uh, but he's, he's really good at channeling that frustration into, uh, productive ways of, of dealing with it. He hasn't punched any walls yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I am definitely the wall puncher. <laughs> um, okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of round back to the, the Bow Valley discussion. Because uh, it does figure n- not only into the divide, but you know, into other bikepacking routes, and you know, it is it is around Canmore, so Canmore HQ. So I know there's a lot of listeners from the area, um, but maybe let's start with um, how how did you come to work with uh, the the organization? What's what's some of your background? Um, so I did a I've done um, a master's and a PhD. Um, master's was in primatology with monkeys. Oh, cool. Realized pretty quickly that it was going to be hard, hard to find work in primatology. And I think I made the right choice. A lot of my friends who continue down that route are having some trouble now. Um, and then I did a PhD in ecology, uh, actually looking at moose and deer in Kananaskis country. So not far from here. I stayed at the, um, the Kananaskis field station for three full seasons and did a lot of... Um, we looked at... Actually, we looked at pellets, poop. That was fun. Didn't actually deal that much directly with uh, moose and deer. Um, but at the same time, Jeff and I moved to Kenmore during that PhD, um, had a couple of kids, PhD dragged on. Um, I knew that by that point that academia wasn't going to be for me. And, uh, partly because I had this pretty strong sense that my thesis was going to sit on a shelf and never got read by anybody. And, um, and started looking for opportunities elsewhere. And the Yellowstone to Yukon, um, ended up being, uh, it seemed to be a great fit knowing that they were really science-based. Um, and most of the advocacy advocacy that they do is in partnership with um, scientists and people who've done like solid research. And it's not, not very green PC. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't out there, you know, trying to sink ships and things like that. I, um, why do I is a better fit for me and my background. And, uh, and luckily a, a position came up that was a perfect fit and, and I got the job. So I've been here since June. Hmm. Primates. Yeah. Primates to Y2Y. Hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit of a jump. Um, monkeys in Costa Rica, that's what I was doing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and you've been here for, for eight months, you were telling me? Yeah. Okay, awesome. And you, in Alberta program coordinator, that's the right term? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Okay, so in the office here, so we're, we're in the Y2Y office in uh, Camor. How many, how many staff are here? We've got about um, 12 in the office, and we have uh, a number of remote staff. So we actually have staff through the whole region. We've got um, two in the States and uh, two in BC, yeah. sort of Nelson and then up near Chetwind. I don't know if you know Chetwind. No. Um, kind of near the Peace River area. Okay. Okay. So it's a charity, right? 
Yeah. Or yeah. registered. Yeah. It is. And it's, uh, so going into the U.S., I'm assuming there's a, an American branch of this also? Yeah. Well, it's all, we're all part of the same branch, but you're right. Two different charitable numbers. Okay. And then there's a board of directors in Canada and a board of directors in Montana. Okay. Um, so I was, I was chatting with Sarah before I came. I said, you know, do you have any questions? So Sarah, my wife about uh, the corridor like to, to me I, I've traveled it so many times on the, the great divider route that I, I, I can just picture every little piece of it and yeah I kind of understand how it all fits together but for someone who had never done it before maybe let's kind of backtrack and say like tell a little bit about like what it is like do, do you call it a wildlife corridor like what's the proper terminology for it yeah well it's um we rarely call the whole area a wildlife corridor. We talk about um, wildlife corridors within the area, so connecting different protected areas um, that exist within the whole region. Okay. And uh, so generally a corridor is, um, it's, a, it's a band of land that protects two different protected, or, or sorry, connects two different protected areas. And uh, one of the big um, elements of our vision is to, there are a lot of protected areas in both um, you know, our Canada and the States and our part of the YDY region. Um, but they're not all connected to each other. So to keep the genetic diversity moving between these two protected areas, um, we're, so we're advocating and a lot of the times actually helping to build um, and protect these wildlife corridors between areas. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, genetic diversity. Is that like, so, so if animals are, 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 are kept to like a very specific area and they're just doing circles, you don't get that diversity with, you know, kind of surrounding populations. Exactly. So, so what, what, what is the, the ripple effect from, from, you know, just keeping them in small areas? Right. Um, that, that kind of brings us back to the origin of the wide away vision. So, okay. uh, in like the early nineties, a bunch of conservation, um, biologists and some other academics and some, um, advocates, started or became really aware of the fact that the grizzly bear population in the Yellowstone region was totally isolated from any other grizzly bear population um, in the States. And, uh, and we know that there's this sort of island effect that when you, when you have an isolated population, um, the genes start becoming inbred and then the population is not nearly as robust as it would be otherwise. So ultimately, um, the smaller population gets and the less interbreeding there is, they become extinct over time. So the why do I um, vision, or part of it anyway, came from the idea of connecting this isolated grizzly bear population with all the other grizzly bear populations um, that exist along the whole sort of Rocky Mountain band there. Um, and yeah, it's, it's neat actually. We found, um, there, so it's still disconnected. <laughs> it's not yet connected, but uh, late, I guess in the last two years, we, the numbers have come in and we found that... Um, that population is only about 100 miles, 160 kilometers from um, the northern population, which is the closest the two have been in the last 100 years. Okay. It's pretty neat. Yeah, we're, I'm looking at a, a big map uh, on, on the back wall here showing, I guess, the progress that you've made as far yeah. as the protective areas. And that was one of the interesting things I noticed on your your website, so it's y2y.net, right? Mm-hmm. Y2y.net. Yeah. Um, there's a, a map that you can... Um, scroll horizontally back and forth across to show kind of how things started as far as the protective lines to what it is now. It's, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how everything uh, pieces together. So it's still still a lot of work to be done, you're saying. Still a lot of work for sure, yeah. there's um, The way we think of it is that the area in the north um, we're trying to protect and that it's easier to just sort of uh, get some of those lands that are fairly undeveloped, fairly untouched by humans. Um, I mean, nothing is pristine, but they're doing pretty well up there to get those protected. This In the center of the region, we're trying to do um, more of the connecting. So we have some some pockets of protected areas. We just need to get them all connected up. And then da- down towards the south in the states where there's a lot more private land in those areas than there are in the rest of the region, um, a lot of restoration actually has to happen. A lot of Going back in, um, making the lands suitable for wildlife again. A lot of them have been pretty beat up. Okay. Yeah. So we both live here, and, you know, for whatever reason, I, I've heard about Y to Y a bunch of times, but, you know, I'm thinking about someone in, like, Ontario or even yeah. further east. Is is this corridor, you know, um, are there s- several types of these kind of corridors across North America? Is this one the largest is it the most unique for any particular reason like why why should someone from the east kind of care about what's going on yeah this um 
this is the only um, sort of, we call this like one of the last remaining intact mountain ecosystems in the world. So, um, and by intact, we mean that um, within the area, all of the sort of original species that were there before Europeans came and settled the area, um, they're still there. Whether or not they're distributed evenly through the area is a different story, but they're still, they're still present in at least one of the areas along um, the region. So in terms of like actual efforts to have a, a wide, wide vision in other places, there's, there are other organizations that are starting up, and I wish I could think of them offhand. Um, there's one in, um, there's absolutely one in Africa, and I don't remember its name. There was, um, there's one in, I think, the Caribbean islands where they're actually trying to, um, and I, I actually don't even know how that would work. Anyway, <laughs> trying to imagine these actual islands being linked up in some way. Maybe it's about designating the waters between them as something in particular. I can't remember, but they're, um, the idea is starting to catch on yeah. for sure. And uh, But this is sort of the pilot project. Huh, interesting. Do you have a sense of how how many how many kilometers, like uh, square kilometers, uh, we're dealing with? It's a lot. Well, the, the region as a whole is um, 3,200 kilometers in length. And um, we don't actually talk about it in terms of square kilometers because the boundaries are a little bit um, fuzzy in terms of the where the foothills end and exactly which areas we... Part of what we need to do and what we are doing is identifying areas of high biodiversity within the whole region. And that'll kind of inform like where we want to have the boundaries of the region. So we think of it more in terms of its length than in terms of its area. Hmm. Yeah. So what is it about... Like the the continental divide or the, the mountain ranges here, that you know, why, why do animals make this area their their corridor? Well, I think we have we have a lot of wide ranging mammal species in this in this valley in this whole um, as you say in the Great Divide area, and um, it's simply that the large um, mammals like wolves and grizzly bears, cougars, um, elk, even um, require a lot of space. So they, the ranges are huge. Um, sometimes they can't, the ranges can't be contained within a single protected area. So it just, it's for that reason that we actually, um, they, you know, they just, they move all over the place through this, this region. And that's why um, the protection is so necessary. They did a study um, back in the 90s on, <laughs> I don't remember the specific details. I know the wolf's name was Pluey because we hear about Pluey the wolf all the time. Um, Pluey started somewhere in um, southern Canada and moved all the way through the states, down through Montana, around Idaho, through BC, and came back to Alberta um, while it was radio collared. Um, it, it was a huge range, and I think that was one of the aha moments that these animals need a ton of space in order to actually survive. Hmm. Yeah. So, how do how do you when you when you're securing all these relationships? So, okay, let's take another step back. Yeah. So, what what is the role of of why to why like? Are you on the ground everywhere along this whole corridor, or are you trying to manage the relationships? Um, you know, what is kind of what is your prime objective? Yeah, um, we are building partnerships. That's sort of one of the um, the way we get our work done is because there's so much work to be done, and we can't do it all. We uh, form a lot of on the ground partnerships with different organizations. In some cases, we will actually um, partner with them and we'll both do the work. In some cases, we'll fund their work if their work fits within our vision and our mandate. Um, we do do some of the on the ground work. It's funny, we, I, in Canmore specifically, I get a lot of people being like, hey, I want to volunteer for you. And I'm like, it, it's desk work. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we're not going to go out and like get wolverines today. We're not yeah, going to be not like you're trees. Building fences and building trails. We're not. Okay, no. So Sometimes that, I wish we were, but yeah. we're not right now. No. Um, so it's through the partnerships that a lot of the work gets done. Okay. Okay. Now, um, I, I, I'm not sure if you if you know this, but uh, I'm trying to like connect the dots here to where I first learned about it from reading Karsten's book. Okay. What's is he is he involved in the organization? Like, what's his? He role? is, and he was. Um, so Karsten um, was our most recent uh, past president, actually. So he okay. was the president of Y2Y from 2013 till um, 2015, I believe, yeah. is when Jody, our, our current president, came on, and um, and it was this neat sort of homecoming where he. Uh, Carson's also been working for Banff Park. Um, I saw him in his green uniform on the bus <laughs> the, the other day. He's the real deal. He goes early in the morning. Did you see him at like 630? Uh, he, he, yeah, he might have been coming okay. back. Yeah, he, um, he right now is, well, 
prior, I'll, I'll tell you, first of all, prior to coming back to Y2Y, he was a park ranger for, for Banff. And, um, and I think that's been his sort of position for, for many, many years. And then decided to come back to Y2Y and give it a try. And he was president here for a couple of years, realized that it's a little bit more, um, desk work and stakeholder negotiations yeah. and, um, you know, getting, uh, going to fancy dinners and trying to get people to donate things that he wasn't as interested in. And, uh, and went back to parks, and now he's he's leading the bison reintroduction effort actually um, oh, for okay. Banff National Park. Huh. He's been a big part of that, and uh, and they recently had you know the huge success of actually getting bison on the ground out there. Yeah, that was within the last month or so. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, it's been really recent. So, uh, did the organization exist before he did his his hike? I'm trying to place the timeline. Yeah, the um, the idea for. The um, the whole vision and the and what ultimately ended up being the organization came about in 1993. So um, at that time, when when people were starting to understand that uh, protected areas weren't necessarily enough, and they started thinking larger scale, a bunch of people went actually to the Kananaskis Field Station where I did my field work, and uh, and that's where the idea for the whole the whole vision. Um, it's it was literally one of those back of the napkin sort of like someone wrote why do why and Yellowstone to Yukon and that became thing. Um, so that was 1992. And then Karsten did his walk, I think in 1998, 1999. Okay. Yeah. A few years later. Okay. So does, does the corridor extend a bit? So I'm looking at this map again on the wall. So at the bottom, you've got, um, uh, Jackson, Wyoming. And at the top, you've got Dawson, um, up in the, the Yukon area, does the, does the corridor extend beyond that, or like is, is people have asked if we wanted if we would consider um, you know taking it all the way up to the Arctic, and uh, the answer right now is that it just goes as far as the Rocky Mountains go. Okay, and that's um, that's its northernmost point at this stage. Um, I think <laughs> I think part of the idea is let's fill in some more of these gaps within the actual region before we think of extending the corridor. Uh, beyond what we've got now as our as our goal. Yeah. If um if someone came to us and said, hey, we are going to donate land, you know, outside of your region, I think we'd we would certainly consider like, okay, how can we incorporate this into our vision? Um, but right now, this is, I mean, and it's it's still huge, but it's sort of a, a workable um, vision for us. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm assuming if you know the, the mountains act as a bit of a corridor that you know that divide watershed like keeps going like our full route all the way down to Mexico so right. I, I yeah I imagine there's more but yeah when you look at the map and see right. what's been done and what still needs to be done it's it's a little overwhelming as it is you know stick yeah. with the Y to Y because it's catchy <laughs> that's true too <laughs> then, then we'll move on to Y to Z okay <laughs> uh, okay so we know kind of Carson's uh, playing all this um, interesting so Give me a sec to yeah. think of some questions here. So what's, um, you know, so I'm looking at this map. So the green is protected areas. Um, so that's, if, if I were to guess, those are, would be the areas that are like totally locked down. That's it exactly. They're, um, so they're considering those areas like actual protected areas that are either, well, m- most of which are parks. So some yeah. sort of park status. And um, the yellow in that region and for those of you who can't see, there's there's a bit more yellow than green, I would say, for um, our, on our map right now. That's just other conservation designations. So it might be like a public land use zone where certain activities are allowed and other ones aren't. It could be that someone has um, private land that they've put a conservation easement on. Those types of things. Okay. Yeah. So some of the big green areas, we've got uh, Banff and Jasper National Park, and then further to the south... It looks like the next big one would be uh, Glacier National Park. Right. Those are the ones kind of stand up. Those are the ones. You, I, I mean, I think you guys, um, so when I looked up the Great Divide Trail, okay. it looked like it started in Kakwa region. Is that like the Kakwa Provincial Park? Or does it actually start higher? So, okay. So there's a Great Divide ma- um, hiking trail. And then there's a Great Divide mountain bike route. Ah, I didn't realize. It's, okay. it's interesting okay. how many people don't even know that. I feel like I'm one of the first to get it. And I talked to the Great Divide hiking trail group, and they didn't even know about the Great Divide okay. mountain bike group. So okay. the, the, hike, the hiking group, their trail starts, um, I believe it's, yeah. Like north of Jasper? Yeah, yeah, I was sort of thinking north of Prince George there. Oh, okay. 
and uh, then goes all the way down to the American border down in, um, right. well, I get it really in Waterton, I guess, is where it would start, in Waterton National Park. Okay. Um, so it, kind of closely paralleling, but then like the mountain bike route sticks more to like the four service roads that navigate that way. I, I asked okay. about whether we could bike the hiking trail and they're like, you know, it's barely a hiking trail. It's more like a set of GPS. That's what I was reading. A lot of the time people are bushwhacking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. So similar, but a li- di- yeah, different. Okay. Ultimately. And you guys are often on forest roads and yeah. which kind of gives you a neat, like, on the ground view of some of the stuff that's happening out there. Um, yeah. Most of the roads you're on, are they decommissioned and old or are they um, fairly active? So, so for, okay. So from Banff, like just talking about Canada. So from Banff, we do Goat Creek trail um, and then follow the, uh, so in actually this week I'm meeting with Alberta parks to talk about the West side road that goes around spray legs. Yeah. So it currently goes through there, but as I understand that that's, that's an animal corridor right there that I okay. think they're wanting to close down for that reason. Okay. They want my feedback a little bit on that. Okay. So yeah, you follow the Smith Dorian road eventually up and over Elk Pass. Okay. And then down into Elkford. Right. Okay. So from, from, from that area, um, all the way to Sparwood and then you go through the Flathead Valley. Right. Um, you know, so I, as I understand it, those, those are kind of big areas that you, that you guys are focusing on. Yeah. The flat. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah, and then you have, um, you know, one of the big stakeholders there, as I understand it, would be the tech mines. Yeah. And uh, their boundaries are always uh, changing, so I imagine you're, you're in regular communication with them. Yeah, so the Flathead isn't... Um, I'm not working on that directly. It's I know it's one of those sort of 25-year ongoing campaigns where um, there seems to be progress, and the progress, you know, doesn't quite rear its head, and... Um, In terms of exactly how much communication we have with tech, it's a good question. I'm guessing not tons because they probably don't love us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So I I was on your website and there was a video on the progress that's been made, I think, the last 20 years. And a representative from tech is on there talking. And I'm like, okay, so there's some engagement. Right. So I I had a question. I didn't exactly know how to frame it, but um, I'll just kind of talk it out and see where it goes. Sure. So when I've been scouting uh, my guidebook, I popped out onto one of their land by accident and, you know, one of their security trucks kind of hauled me in and, you know, I I was expecting like I'd crossed in the private property. It's a mine, like it's money, 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 get off our land. Mm -hmm. And the the conversation that came out of that was actually quite interesting. um, the, well, the one, they were concerned for my safety because I, okay. I basically popped out of the woods into a blasting zone. Right. Um, so <laughs> That's they, great. They, they wanted to, they wanted to understand how to better sign, uh, their lands for, you know, backcountry folk. Okay. Um, but they were quite aware of like the great divide mountain bike route and, you know, they mentioned it goes on their lands, uh, whether people realized it or not. Okay. Um, but the, the conversation that I had with them seemed very, um, open and, Understanding as far as um, people like to be active in the backcountry, uh, they have a specific job and you know uh, stakeholders themselves, yeah. and things just have to be mined. That's just how the way the world works. Right. But they, they seem very open as far as ch- having a dialogue, which I found very interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. We um, so I I don't know much about our relationship with tech at all. So it, it that's actually something that I. I I'm now interested in looking into yeah. because maybe it's been positive and I haven't been aware. Um, but we definitely have some good, open, honest um, conversations with different stakeholders in different areas. And we're often surprised by um, sort of the the support. I don't know if support is the full is exactly the word, but the I guess the openness with which people um, talk about, you know, what they're doing on their land. Um, oftentimes, you know, their impression is that um, they're doing everything they can um, in an environmental way. They're they're proud of the efforts that they've done. They feel like they, um, you know, they, they could have taken this route, but instead they took this route, which was not required of them, but which they opted to do. Like, we hear that fairly often. And um, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but I there have been enough instances where I've been um, pleasantly surprised. You know, you, you walk into situations and you um, often sort of, worry that you need to have your backup and then you quickly realize that there's no need to. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, everyone that's, you know, all the landholders and whatever through this, this corridor at this point, would you say they're pretty well all aware of 
you know, your efforts or is there still a lot of communication that needs to happen? For sure. There's, um, what's a really interesting time right now, because, um, we were talking before about, uh, before we started recording about what's happening in the castle and, um, uh, in the, a lot of the time, like, so I've, I found lately more than ever, um, I'm hearing, we're seeing Why Do I's name in the media and it's, um, it's a real, it's a real spin on what we're actually trying to achieve. People have claimed that Why Do I is trying to make the whole court, the whole area from Yellowstone to Yukon into a park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and essentially that no one can do anything in yeah. the whole region and that we're trying to get rid of any sort of, um, recreational opportunities. Uh, it's, it's really interesting how people come up with these takes on what it is that we're trying to do. I think so a lot of there are a lot of people who are well informed about what it is that we're trying to achieve, but there's there's definitely some miscommunication out there right now that's um, being spread around through, um, for example, pro OHV groups down in the castle area who um, who are getting their their messages sort of spreading upwards along the eastern slopes a little bit in terms of um, why do I wants to take this all away from you? Hmm. So I, I, right now, it you know, there's. The challenge of social media is is a big part of this, where people can post things not as anonymously and don't have any sort of responsibility for what it is that they're saying. Yeah. And you can't read tone on social media. You can't read intent. Yeah. You know, it's some of that stuff gets um, clouded too. So, um, generally speaking, we have a lot of supporters through the whole area and um, and stakeholders who are doing things like like we have um, we correspond a lot with. West Fraser, a forestry company up um, who works near the Bighorn region, and um, and Warehouser, for example, another forestry company, they they're fully aware of what it is that we're trying to achieve, and um, on paper at least, they're willing to um, to curtail some of how they um, do their forestry operations so that it fits better with our mandate and and maintaining biodiversity. Like leave a tree or two. <laughs> <laughs> this is the question: is uh, what it will actually look like in a practical sense, yeah. and uh, and even when I say on paper, we don't actually have their signatures on anything yet. You know, yeah. so it's uh, it some of it could be lip service. It's hard to know. Yeah, well, I, I know in some cases that the, you know the the corridors or the, the various respective pieces are trying to come together into more productive lands, like the Flathead Valley in particular. Um, I, I believe is trying to become an extension of uh, Waterton and and or Glacier National mm-hmm. Park, so that will become or possibly become more of a protective area. And um, interesting, actually, for for those listening, when I was researching um, my various routes and, and doing a bit more digging into the Flathead Valley, the the mine at Corbin, so the Tech Mine, uh, that's right at the start of the climb up and over. Um, it's, it would be Flathead Pass. So after you leave Sparwood, the long paved chunk, and then you come into Corbin, and there's a big mine there, and then you climb up and over Flathead and drop down into the valley. Um, but I've heard that um, I believe it's within the next year that they're going to decommission that mine um, and or give it back to the um, you know original land owners. So. In, you know, indigenous people right. uh, to some degree. So, right. There, yeah, some, that's, some. That's great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, that would probably be the Tunaha. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and from what I understand, um, they're really getting into the conversation now, which I think is awesome. Yeah. I think they have not been as involved, whether they've been actively left out or whether they have chosen not to be involved, I'm not sure, but they're now getting involved. And, um, yes, it's awesome to hear that it's going to be given back to them. What's what's um, what's the local involvement like uh, in the Bow Valley? Like I, I heard, and I, re- I wish I would have thought to research this a bit more before I came on. But I remember in the news uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, I think it was Banff uh, Park was talking about giving back some of the ownership uh, to the original uh, peoples um, to do pretty well whatever they they wish with it. And that. Does that sound right? I haven't heard that specifically. That's amazing if that's true. Okay. I I know um, like Banff has been making an amazing effort to um, you know to rename Tunnel Mountain according to what its local name originally was. They're they're trying to make some strong effort. That sounds like it's maybe just you know it's a gesture. Yeah. But um, for example, one of the ideas of the the bison reintroduction is that over time. First Nations people will take over the um, sort of management of the population size. Okay. So it's giving them um, opportunities to actually 
reconnect with bison in the way that they historically did. Okay. Um, I haven't heard about giving back some Banff. That would be like literally incredible. So I hope that's the case. <laughs> As I'm saying that, I'm like, ah, uh, did I give this up? Um, yeah, I, I, I won't cut this out, but further, further research is needed. Um, I, I can say that we, we talk with, um, uh, or we communicate um, fairly regularly with the um, with Morley yeah. and um, and Morley the, the people of Morley the Stony First Nation um, are interested in what's happening in the Bow Valley in terms of development. They um, come to our meetings occasionally, and they um, we hear things from their opinion, um, from their perspective on. They also actually were one of the. Um, I don't know. Did you hear what was happening at Dead Man's Flats? There's a, a development proposal there yeah. that happens right at the mouth of one of the um, yeah. wildlife underpasses. Mm-hmm. And the town of Canmore um, fought them in court, yeah. essentially. Not not in court, I guess. They appealed to the MGB, the Municipal yeah. Governments Board, um, over their development, saying that it was going to have an impact on the wildlife corridor. And one of, and the Stony Nation also supported that, um, which is great. So they, they get in there when they feel like... Um, for them, I think their prime interest, it, it, as I've heard it, um, through Bill Snow, who's one of the representatives, is, is in the grizzly bears. Which, because they have great spiritual and traditional significance for them, so they want to make sure that grizzlies persist in the valley. Hmm. Yeah. So going back to the the various uh, stakeholders, and I'm thinking more of people with uh, you know commercial interests, so mining and forestry. How do you approach groups like that in a way that they would even care what you have to say? Because it's it's not like you're coming down on them as like yeah. you, you have to do this and it's law and it's no. Like, it would be completely sort of voluntar- voluntarily, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of different ways to do this. And again, I'm, I'm pretty new, so I'm only um, just getting into some of the more strategic um, stakeholder relations okay. parts of things. But I think a big uh, way to approach those types of issues is to get, um, essentially say, this is, this, if you want community support for what you're doing, this is what you have to do. Yeah. If you want buy-in for... Um, what otherwise looks like a greedy endeavor to make more money. <laughs> these are some of the things that you can do to give back to your community or to protect these areas or have a little bit of social license, essentially. Yeah. Um, that's one way of framing it. Another way is that um, in some cases, uh, we can sort of create some of the government relations that then we don't necessarily deal directly with the mining company. We'll deal with the, the government who will then in turn um, have some have a conversation with a mining company, for example. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And there, there may be other ways of doing it. I'm again, I'm, I'm just learning all this stuff too. Right. Yeah. Uh, so going back to the big map on the wall, what, what are some of the big successes that, uh, you know, get highlighted in your, your annual, yeah. annual meetings, that sort of thing? <laughs> well, I think the classic one that everyone has heard of, uh, is that you know within the Wide region and Banff specifically? That's that's where the, the big overpasses um, first originated. Those huge wildlife overpasses that you see across the Trans Canada Highway um, in both Banff and Jasper now, and uh, those have been you know they've been well studied. They're they've just been extremely successful. The numbers I think are that they've reduced wildlife collisions in those areas by ninety percent. So it's awesome, and uh, and it's really those are easy conversations to have because. Um, the return on the investment is is really high in terms of um, insurance on and like the the damage done to cars and the um, you know potential hospital stays and when you actually look at the economic impact it, it's positive over time to yeah. put in that sort of investment. Yeah, and it's not a kind of hippie. Uh, yeah, you know, let's save the world. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you can sort of say here's a clear reason why and it's going to help you economically. Yeah. And then that that design has started to be um, implemented in other region parts of the region too. There's some talk in the um, in uh, Idaho right now of a similar design, which is awesome. So that's that's I think a big success. The um, it, some of that also along Highway Three, although they're not going to be the huge, the same big overpasses, but um, sort of restoring connectivity along Highway Three is it's working really well so far. And there's there are other projects to be done through there. So Pincher Creek, Crossnest Pass, that sort of area. Yeah. Um, but those have uh, so far done really well. And then I mentioned like the um, grizzly bear populations coming closer, and, uh, and which is sort of a tangible um, result. It would be amazing when they actually connect. Um, yeah, I think generally we've had, uh, there are a bunch of things like um, what is known as the whaleback region, um, which is um, 
Bob Getty Provincial Park, I believe. Is that right? I think so. That was protected a number of years ago, and why do I played a large role in that? The castle protection is, um, you know, although the management plan is still underway and there's still a lot of public consultation on it, there's no question that those two, um, there's going to be two parks in the castle area. And why do I was, I mean, along with a number of other organizations, but we we played a big part in that too. So um, again, I'm talking mostly about Alberta. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. That's, that's fine. Okay, so let's go with the one that's top of mind. So with Cass, going back to Castle. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to understand like uh, what exactly you guys are doing in that re- regard. Uh, yeah. So w- what are you doing uh, with Castle? Well, with the Castle right now, we're really just trying to get um, people to comment on their draft strategy right now on their um, their draft management plan. So there's, I think the consultation period is about a month, another month long. And they, to date, have had slightly over 50% um, feedback from OHV users that they there should be OHV use in the castle. Yeah. Everything, um, all the polls that we've done and uh, or that we have access to, we haven't done ourselves, have suggested that quiet recreationalists, like people who mountain bike, people who hike, um, people who aren't using motorized vehicles, are, are by far the majority, and that we're being quiet. Yeah. And so it's a great opportunity to get out there. Um, this, I mean, to have your voice heard and say, no, I support what you're doing. Um, one of the things about uh, the castle is that it's, you know, it's, I, th- I don't think we should quote me on this, but I believe it's the most biodiverse area in the whole province. Okay. They've got, there's over 200 rare or at-risk species in that particular area. And, um, and it's also the headwaters for, like, the Old Man River comes right out of there. Um, and so there's a really strong, clear re- reason to kind of keep OHVs out of muddying streams and out yeah. of the region um, for the sake of the biodiversity. And uh, we can we have OHVs in other places. It's not like we're saying no, H- no OHVs on the eastern slopes. We're saying in this particular, unique, special place, let's keep them out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So when... See, part of this, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm just not well researched or what, but I, I have a hard time figuring out like who comes first as far as, you know, the, uh, establishing Castle as a as a provincial park. Like, where does that interest come from initially, and ultimately, where do, where does where does the phone call happen as far as you know, does someone specifically reach out to Waterwide to say, can you guys come in to consult on this or whatever, or are you? Always right. on the lookout for these sorts of things happening and then ultimately, you know, trying to get a foot in the door to, to have, you know, a piece in the conversation. It's, it's kind of the latter. Okay. Yeah, more than anything. Um, for the castle, as I, I think the castle has been on Wide Away's radar for at least 20 years, so long, long before I came on. I don't know exactly how that initiated, but we have a good, we have our eye to the ground to sort of anything that's happening within our region. And if there's an opportunity for us to jump in and support something... We often do, and especially if there's an opportunity um, to raise money for uh, other people to support it, we will, generally speaking. Yeah. Create a lot of work for me the other day, Hillary. I, I put out, I'm working on draft one of my guidebook, and one of them goes, one of my routes did go through the castle special <laughs> management area, and I, and I pressed send, and I sent it out all to my... Uh, my book sponsors who, who review the kind of the first yeah. draft and they're like, uh, correction, please. Actually. It's actually a provincial <laughs> park and I had to go and backtrack and fix up. A Terribly bunch of sorry. Yeah. Huge nuisance. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've got the castle area. So, you know, the big issue right now is what role are, uh, off highway vehicles. So OHV, uh, folks going to have, and yeah. then, um, uh, the other, one of the other areas you said, well, your area focuses more the, you said the Bow Valley and, uh, Bighorn, Bighorn right? Bighorn, right. And, um, the, my, yeah, my connection to Bighorn, I guess the, for my, for many of us in the, in the general area, the closest we would get to Bighorn is if you cycle the forestry trunk road. So part of the Alberta Rockies 700, um, so Bighorn is, uh, kind of, uh, on the outskirts of the Western or the it would be eastern boundary of Jasper and Banff National Park, right in the middle there. Um, it, do you do you find that you're running into some of the similar issues? Because it would be kind of a similar kind of region to the it castle. Is a, it right? is a similar um, similar issues in the sense that it hasn't been well protected in the past, and yeah. uh, and we're starting to see um, damage accumulating in the area. So, um, like specifically around the Bighorn Dam region, which is um, you know, not anywhere near um, sort of the eastern 
or sorry, I guess the western side of the Bighorn, the eastern side of the Jasper and, and Banff parks, yeah. a little further in, um, like Abraham Lake area. Okay. Um, there's a there's a lot of random camping camping happening and a lot of um, OHV use and there's some areas of the Bighorn that kind of like you may have heard of McLean Creek sometimes like yeah. conservation officers won't go in there at all on May long weekend for example because there's guns there's drugs people are drunk like it's just yeah. not safe to go in there at all and there are areas of the Bighorn that um, have the same type of pressure on them I guess I'll say and. Um, there, there just seems to be a bit of an attitude uh, towards being able to do whatever you want to do on public lands, yeah. um, regardless of the... Um, I, you know, and I understand that a lot of people are less less concerned about um, wildlife values, but the Bighorn's also headwaters. So it's the headwaters for the Edmonton region. Um, 88% of Edmonton's water comes from the Bighorn, okay. and it's not protected at all. Oh, okay. So... Yeah, um, we are definitely of the mind that it's time. Alberta right now, too, has committed to the... Um, have you heard about the 17% um, sort of... There, there's a target of reaching 17% protection for each province in Canada by the year 2020. Alberta signed on. Um, all the provinces have. They had no choice. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're... I actually don't know what percentage we're at currently, but we're nowhere near 17. Um, and so one of the ways that we're... Suggesting to um, you know to supporting the the protection of the bighorn is that we can get a little closer to that seventeen percent, and we're only three years away from that hmm. that end point. So. so, so I've been up and down the the forestry trunk road a couple of times, and I kind of got the general sense that everything to the the west of that road seemed like pretty similar, you know, foothill terrain. Yeah. It seemed like a lot of random gravel roads and forestry and um, you know, tracks for off, you know, highway vehicles. Right. So it, would it be safe to assume then, then what you're faced with in the Bighorn area is actually pretty much what exists all along the front range there? Um, I think that it's pretty accessible because, uh, you know, I think, is it highway 11 that comes all the way through there? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's that element. It's, it's a little more accessible than some other parts of the, the Eastern slopes. Um, there again, it's the head since it's the headwaters specifically for Edmonton. That's sort of why we've focused in on that area because okay. um, there's there's some really direct sort of um, community value. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, no, I, <laughs> there's a, a hook. There's a clear hook. Yeah, for it, the Bighorn. It's, it's where they get their drinking water. <laughs> it's where they get their drinking water. Yeah, it's it's that tangible. Exactly. Yeah, you can okay. make it about people rather than just about wildlife, which a lot of the times really helps the conservation effort to say, no, this will benefit you directly. This is your this is your drinking water. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like in terms of the actual biological value of a lot of the eastern slopes, um, it's all it's all you're right. Similar trains, similar foothills. Um, in some cases, there is forestry. In some cases, there isn't. The Bighorn is fairly intact right now. Um, within the public land use zones, there is um, there's very little sort of commercial use happening. So in the, uh, there are fewer roads there than there are in some other areas of the eastern slopes. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's bring it back to uh, the Bow Valley. So the, the hot button for those of us in the, the Canmore area and what you know jeff has has put himself out in front for all of us um i, I i'm well you know actually sorry i do want to ask one other question sure. about off highway vehicles so ohv folk what is their argument so when you come at them and say or not you specifically yeah. but when the you know various organizations come at them and say you know uh when you when you go through the streams you mutter the streams which affects you know the fish downstream and, and all that sort of thing like what is their that, case yeah, like, why does they, it even hold? they absolutely have. Um, so it's it's it is unfair. I agree to lump all OHV users into one category. There are some who are a lot more responsible than others. Yeah. Um, there are some who put a lot of effort into building up trails and building bridges over rivers, and who would never mud bog, for example. They'd never like go into a mud. A muddy region specifically to get you know to make huge ruts in it, yeah. um, and and it's true in some cases that um, you know some of those bad users are kind of they're they're wrecking things for everyone. I agree that that's so that one of their arguments is hey no we aren't those people we are responsible users if we have designated trails we'll stay on them. Um, 
One of the arguments against that is that the the compaction and it's, um, of the soil is is a problem. Um, you know, there's going to be runoff through those areas when there's these big, wide um, OHV trails, and um, and also that it's a it's a question of volume. So OHVs are pretty loud. Um, there's really clear research showing that a lot of wildlife species are they they keep them a big buffer between themselves and any kind of motorized recreational vehicle. So there's certain areas of the landscape that these wildlife species aren't using anymore. Um, I also, I think, you know, a big argument is like, hey, I've been using the castle since I was a kid. I went there with my dad. This is what we've been doing as a family activity for our whole, you know, our whole lives. I want to be able to do this with my children. And I I understand that too. I do. Um, I just think that, you know, our argument is like, let's, let's keep you guys out of the castle, out of the watershed, and yeah. let's let's move you to somewhere a different area that can actually. It sounds, I know, it sounds like it. Do like, donuts in the prairie. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but there are other areas of the landscape that could actually um, not. It wouldn't cause as much damage to these areas as it does in the castle. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So uh, back to uh, the Bow Valley. So uh, give us a sense of, um, you know, who are the stakeholders? What, you know, what are the big discussion points uh, these days for th- for those that don't live in the area? Okay. Um, so at the moment, there are, yeah, actually four development proposals for the Bow Valley. Um, the one that has been on my radar since I joined Y2Y in June um, has been the Three Sisters Mountain Village proposal. Where I live. Where, <laughs> where Ryan lives incidentally. I rent, though. <laughs> I'm not that invested. <laughs> and you live in a house that's already been built, so we're not terribly concerned with your house at yeah. this stage. It's there. Yeah. Um, but there's a proposal for development essentially east of where you are all the way down to Dead Man's Flats. Mm-hmm. So that whole section of, um, of forest and um, ultimately of corridor is going to be uh, developed. Um, when Three Sisters Mountain Village bought this land, they knew that part of their requirement, according to a decision that was made in 1992, that we're all kind of beholden to, even though it was, it's an ancient decision that no one, many of us wish had never gone through, but we're all sort of stuck adhering to what happened in 1992. Um, according to that decision, part of the um, privately owned land of Three Sisters Mountain Village had to be dedicated to a corridor. And the person or the organization making that decision about the corridor's um, sort of uh, alignment or like dimensions is the provincial government of Alberta. So um, Alberta Environment and Parks. So Three Sisters Mountain Village is required to submit a corridor proposal to the um, the government. And then the government then... um, is holding, again, what's happening this week, actually, is yeah. uh, the public consultation on the proposed corridor. So they're getting public feedback on it. Um, is it wide enough for wildlife? Is it not? Will will this actually function as a corridor? Will it not? Um, those are the questions being asked right now about um, about what Three Sisters has proposed. Why do I's take is, no, it's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's too narrow, and, uh, and it includes too many slopes over 25 degrees, which um, research shows are used by um, the wildlife species that we care about much less than flatter terrain. Um, so that's Three Sisters Mountain Village. That's, that's all sort of happening right now. Um, if any of you live in Kenmore and you care about this issue, it's a really great opportunity to have your voice heard to go to um, Coast Hotel on Thursday night, 3 to 5 or 6 to 8. That's when the provincial government is going to be um, there to record people's feedback on, on the corridor. So, yeah, it's, they're going to take it. It's going to be part of the public record. So that's a great way to get your voice heard. Um, another <laughs> proposal that just sort of came up over the last couple of months is Silvertip, um, yeah. which already exists. So and on, the other, on, the, on the north side of the Transcana, so that's the what's, I, I believe, more commonly referred to as the sunny side of the, the valley, the Bow Valley, Canmore area. Yeah, the southern-facing slopes over there. Yeah. Um, they are proposing um, a gondola that essentially starts at the highway, connects to Three Sisters, uh, sorry, uh, Silver Tip, and then goes all the way up to um, the platform, the old abandoned platform where the uh, Lady McDonald Tea House was supposed to be and then never yeah. was built. And um, which actually means con- built, doing a little bit of building in the Bow Valley uh, Wildland Provincial Park because that's designated as a park up there. They're also proposing a casino, 
And, um, and part of what has actually already been approved, I, I realized this um, a few months, I didn't know this initially, but already approved are 13 boutique hotels uh, for that land. Um, what we understand is that the, the 13 boutique hotels kind of require these attractions in order to be financially viable. So that's where the casino and the gondola come in, is that he, they need to be able to have a clear reason to attract people to these areas before they build these hotels. Hmm. Yeah. Um, that one... So it's why do I can be finding a new, uh, new headquarters in the next decade? Yeah, exactly. This is the head... Like, yeah, this is the head office okay, right here. Okay, yep. gotcha. okay. In fact, it's the only office. Everything else is sort of like a satellite office. People just work from home. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So there's that. And then, um, you know, I've already mentioned some of the development that's being... It's sort of light industrial development in Dead Men's Flats um, is, is almost for certain going through at this stage. And then, um, and then we recently heard about uh, a proposal in CB. Have you heard about this? No. Um, by the Stony Nakoda Nation to build a community there. We we know very little about this, so um, we need to learn more. So and I was at, it's funny you mentioned this because I was doing some research for the guidebook uh, for a possible route through that area. So that's on the just off the one. One A. Yeah, one X. One X Highway yeah. um, going over the Bow River. And then you have is it two dams in the area. And the CB used to be, as I understand it, a community that housed um, the workers of those dams, as I understand I think you're it. right. So I, I'm curious. Yeah. I don't, I've never been there. I don't know what, what all exists there still, but the dams are still there, I think. You know what I've actually heard is that um, originally that was Stony Nakota land, yeah. and um, and it was leased to, I think it was Transalta. Yeah. Um, I, if it's not Transalta, I apologize, but I think it was Transalta. And uh, they were supposed to give it back to the Stony Dakota Nation. Instead, they sold it. Huh. Yeah. I just can't believe things like that happen, but apparently that's that's the status of that land. So, hmm. yeah, we don't know very much about that, but something we have to look into further. Okay, so some of the kind of tangible takeaways on, like, what is a wildlife corridor? So you said it can't, it can't have a slope that's over 25 degrees. Is there a certain width that, like a minimum width? Yeah, and these are these are really tough questions because even the twenty five degree um, threshold that has sort of been established is animals will travel on slopes higher than twenty five degrees. Um, there's goats. absolutely been yeah goats will even bears bears elk cougar um, they will use slopes that are over twenty five degrees. They prefer not to. So when they're on steep slopes, it's energetically expensive to travel. And they're also a lot less likely to get um, to get food as they travel. There's not much growing up there, so yeah. it's a bit riskier. They're more exposed to the elements. Um, it's interesting because one of the arguments we hear is, well, they do travel on the slopes, and the truth is that they do, but 95% of their movement, um, and this has been established through a number of studies in the Bow Valley, happen on slopes of less than 25 degrees. So um, we're we're really advocating for this, this corridor to be located mostly on flatter terrain, um, in terms of width, it's this is so interesting because when I came on, I, I maybe the first thing I re- wished was that I had kind of worked on my PhD on like corridors instead of um, you know what I actually looked at, which was monkeys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> monkeys, and then moose and deer just kind of moving through the forest. Corridors. Um, there's a lot of questions around what an ideal width is, and uh, and there are a number of sort of scientific methods that have been proposed, but none of them have been. Um, actually applied to the Bow Valley. So no one's gone out and, you know, put GPS colors on a whole bunch of different species that have a bunch of different ha- habitat requirements and um, actually figured out exactly what movement paths they're using and then applied a few um, formulas like modeling to understand, okay, what is a quarter width that would actually accommodate the vast majority of these species? Mm-hmm. No one's done that. So we're all guessing. <laughs> <laughs> and we're using, I mean, there is research out there. There is science that... Um, that supports uh, wider quarters being better for carnivores. That's pretty clearly established. Yeah. Um, there, we have we have spoken with experts in um, corridor ecology. There's a guy out of uh, the University of Northern Arizona who has said that his no regrets width for he knows the situ- situation in the Bow Valley quite well. His no regrets width for um, this Three Sisters corridor would be a kilometer. If you, if you draw a kilometer from the base of 25-degree slopes, it yeah. crosses the highway. <laughs> yeah. It takes over Dead Man's Flats. It's, it's impossible. We don't have that much room. So what we've lately been um, working with as an absolute minimum is 450 meters. 
because it's a, it's a practical number that you could actually achieve without, um, it would still allow development. It wouldn't say no development at all, but it would say your development has to happen in a, a fairly dramatically different way than you were proposing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Gotcha. So I, I, I went to a talk from, uh, Kevin Van Tegum. Uh, I've seen two of his talks recently on, on talking about watersheds and, um, you know, I, it really kind of reinforced the importance of, uh, you know, protecting the watersheds and I, I get that part of, you know, the, the corridors, I, just for the sake of, of argument yeah. and talking about it, and I know it's going to sound horrible. So you, you talked about, um, animals needing, you know, a long range for one for genetic diversity to have that right. possibility. And if they don't have that, then they they possibly you know go extinct. Um, they you know they can't fight off the, the various things that are coming their way. So to the curmudgeon uh, farm ranch owner, mm-hmm. you know, who says, well, that's just you know evolution. Mm-hmm. Well, do we have an argument back for that? The evolution argument is kind of easy <laughs> in the sense that we're undergoing right now, you know, the largest mass extinction um, in in any you know known historical period, essentially. It's, um, it, you know, it, it kinda, it's funny. I actually used to teach a conservation biology tutorial and my students would say, but humans are part of the natural world. So what we do is natural. So isn't this all natural? And it, it's actually kind of hard to rebut that argument. Um, it comes down to being a more of a philosophical argument. And um, one of the things that I think about personally when I think about conservation work is wanting to have, um, wanting my children to have the experience that I have had with nature, at least as a bare minimum. Um, I think back to when I was a child and you know, they're like all of the animals, like we were, the white rhino was highly endangered that, and everyone talked about it. And now we have a number of species that have the same tiny, tiny populations that are left. And we're, we're almost starting to feel so overwhelmed that it's, it's hard to, um, sort of muster up the energy to, to do the work that's needed to support them. Um, yeah, I, ranchers, <laughs> we're talking about ranchers specifically, a lot of the time they're, livelihood is impacted by, it can be impacted by grizzly bears. You know, they, they hate having grizzly bears on their land if it's going to um, put their cattle at risk or something. Yeah. Um, but there are mitigations that they can put in place that would keep the grizzlies from being attracted in and still allow the grizzlies to survive. I think in a lot of cases there are, sometimes it's hard work and the hard work is hard to do. Sometimes it's easier work. And, uh, and it's just a matter of making a few small changes for humans and wildlife to be able to coexist together. Yeah, I, I, it's a, I, how do you feel? How do you feel? Well, it's, you know, the, the teenager in me, like save the world, you know, it's very easy to jump on the conservation side of things, but now being someone that lives up in three sisters, like right up at that edge where mm-hmm. they're building all or wanting to build all these new, uh, pieces, uh, in the Bow Valley, there's, there's part of me at the same and this is, you know, kind of like, who am I to say that yes so they, no. yeah, like, like to limit someone else from experiencing, you know, the, this beauty that we all enjoy yeah. and being a, because the camera's not that big and you, you can only build so far. Right. So right. at some, like, at what point do you say, okay, no more people and only us folks get to enjoy it. I think, um, I think that's a big challenge is the, um, separating separating having responsible development from the idea that no we live here now and so we're closing it out to everybody else i think kenmore can certainly expand but i in turn i think we got to start building in and we're gonna have to set limits on how much more out we build because we're we don't know where that threshold is where's the tipping point where suddenly you know right now we do have this full complement of sort of iconic species in the valley where is our tipping point um where suddenly grizzly bears are gone and, you know, we didn't really understand where that tipping point was and, and then we've lost them and then there's no turning back. I think um, that's the thing with development. You can't undo it. It's, it's, you can. It'll, yeah. you know, it'll take um, decades. You can undo it. But in, in these cases, um, what you lose, you really do lose. And uh, in terms of, yeah, I feel like Kenmore, for sure, more people, more responsible <laughs> people should come to Kenmore 
Um, we just have to think about the repercussions on, you know, even of having more recreationalists on the trails, um, there, there's going to be a tipping point where we have, you know, we lose what we have and, um, it's kind of like killing the goose that laid the golden egg. People are coming here for the wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. What are we going to do when the wildlife's gone? Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I'm glad the organizations like yours and what Jeff is doing exist. Um, I, I, I'm not a hundred percent one way or the other, but I think it's important as Jeff says is to have an open discussion about it and yeah. make sure people understand the facts and it's not just, um, emotion based. Um, okay. So you said the, okay. So what can, what can the average person do at this point? Let's, let's remind. So as far as being involved with the organization or, cause we're not building trails, we're not building fences, but as I understand right. it, like going to those meetings where they're proposing developments and, you know, uh, kind of stating your case, that would be one way to help. Yeah. And you don't have to have the same opinion that Y to Y does. That's the other thing too. Um, having a different opinion is still, is perfectly valid. It's just a matter of having your voice heard. Yeah. I think it's a matter of, um, sort of staking our claim in our town and, uh, and, and making sure that it grows into what we want it to be. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, for those who want to be further involved with Y2Y, um, you could definitely contact me directly. We can we can talk more about um, different ways that you could be active either with us or on these different issues, for sure. Okay. Um, and I, yeah, I can at the end I can leave my email address or something. But um, in terms of sort of like what can you do, I think being informed is the first thing. And then if you find that you're passionate about something, spreading your passion. Those are... Um, especially like in the Bow Valley, especially in the castle right now too, to be honest, is we need people who, um, to not just sort of sit back and be like, yeah, those sound like good ideas, but to be like, to actually advocate for these good ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about now, I do have a stake in that, that area behind where, where our house is. One of my routes goes through there right now. (laughs) And if there's, if they, if they mess another one of my routes up, I don't know. It's just... See, one of the things I learned about writing a guidebook is you got to write like a new one almost you know every year or so because yeah, all these boundaries so and things change. For sure, I know. Isn't yeah? What have I got myself? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Hillary, for your for your time. And um, this has been something I've I've wanted to to learn more about. And um, I'll, I'll chat with you more behind the scenes. I, I'd like to try to get you guys involved with our, so we have a, a annual summit in Canamore. Uh, okay. so we, the first one was last year where a bunch of bike packing enthusiasts come in and we have interesting, uh, seminars. And I think this could be, a, a an interesting talk where, yeah, where sure. we could pull we up the map for, for everyone to see and, uh, get into it. So we'll, we'll chat more about that. That sounds good. Um, and then in the meantime, where's, where's the best place to, to connect with you and, and learn more about the, the organization? Uh, well, so why to why.net. So why to, uh, the number two, why.net is our website. And, um, for any of the issues we talked about, whether it's like the castle or the bighorn flathead, um, bow Valley, all you do is enter those in a search terms and everything um, that you need to know will come up. Okay. We've got different pages on each of those. Um, and yeah, directly, if you want to write me, I'm Hillary, H I L A R Y at why to why.net. So that's really easy as well. And I'd be happy to hear from anyone. Um, and I really appreciate you chatting with me today. I think it's awesome that you wanted to learn more and, um, and hopefully that your listeners did too. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it just comes with the, the territory. So writing a guidebook, you kind of, uh, whether you intend to or not initially, you, you take on a bit of a responsibility for people's well-being and yeah. understanding more of the issues that are going on around. And yeah, be. I know at the bare minimum, it'd be kind of ignorant not to kind of understand what, what these corridors are all about and why there's development or why there isn't development. Right. And, um, you know, how organizations like yourself look at mountain bikers or, you know, our OHV people more the focus. So, right. um, yeah, I, I, I hope everyone learned something and, uh, looks a nice beautiful sunny day on camera looking out at the mountains and uh, we don't exactly know what all the answers are but i think we can all agree that we want to make sure that we preserve this to some degree awesome yeah thank you cool thanks everybody